Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Hey, good morning. So glad to have you with us today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 6. We are in a teaching series that is continuing to, uh, to unfold as we follow in the steps of Jesus. And so here's one of the things that we notice in the life of the disciples, and I think this is really true in our lives as well, uh, is that we have a really difficult time really understanding and figuring out and learning who Jesus is. Uh, if you've been following Jesus for any period of time, you've probably still run into seasons in your life where you're like, oh man, I thought I had already kind of gotten past this or beyond this point, or I thought I already knew that about God, or I should have been more faithful in that moment. And, and so instead, what we end up doing is kind of having these moments of, of relapse where we kind of go back and we're like, oh, I completely forgot that's what it means to follow in the steps of Jesus. And so the disciples are learning who Jesus is. He has introduced himself to them. The first week of the series, we talked about Jesus calling his disciples into relationship. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to call you into something new. Uh, and then we've also talked about how Jesus has power and authority over everything. We saw him uh, show his disciples, not just that I'm a great healer or a great teacher, but I have power over nature. I have power over demonic oppression. I have power over disease and I even have power over death. Like there is nothing that I can't do. And so you would imagine that the disciples, after seeing these kinds of things would be getting in their minds more and more. Like when we stay close to Jesus, there's nothing that he can't do. Like it is unbelievable to see who he really is. Uh, and so that's going to bring us to Mark chapter six today, where Jesus is going to remove all doubts about who he really is. Because while the disciples kind of have this in their minds, he's the Messiah, they still don't fully know what it means for Jesus to be Messiah. They have their own ideas about what the Messiah is about, what he's supposed to do. And so they still don't fully understand who Jesus is. So Jesus is going to do some things today to just remove all doubts. What does it mean for me to be Messiah? Who am I really? And what does that mean for you? And so there's two things I want you to pay attention to as we go through this this morning. Number one is that Jesus is going to show us what narrative he wants to avoid. There's a narrative for Jesus in the people's ideas for him and the views of him that he wants to completely avoid. Then there is the narrative that Jesus wants to embrace, right? And so we're going to see in this passage this morning, what, it, what narrative is Jesus trying to avoid and what narrative is Jesus going to embrace? So with that kind of in our background, I want us to understand as we go into this account from Mark's gospel that we're going to also be pulling some information from John and from Matthew. One of the beautiful parts about the Bible is that we get these different pieces coming together, these different gospel stories. And so we get a much more fully rounded idea and understanding of what takes place in these events. And so here's what we know as we read into these gospels. The thing that Jesus has just finished doing is feeding 5,000 men. All of the gospels say he fed 5,000 men, which means that they were probably also women and children who were there, right? So lots of people, potentially 10 to 15,000 people. And when the people are hungry, they've been with Jesus for a period of time, and, and they, the disciples come to him and go, all the people are hungry, let's send them away. And he goes, no, you give them something to eat. What do you have? And what's the answer? Well, we kind of scoured around in the crowd. There's five loaves of bread and a couple of fish, right? Like that's what we have. And Jesus goes, well, bring those to me and let's use those, right? And so Jesus blesses it and he divides it out and it is given out to the crowd and it feeds 
everyone. Now, if you're a Jewish person in this context and you see what Jesus does in this, sometimes for us, we read that and we're like, great, he fed 5,000 people with some loaves and fishes. Okay, I get it. He's God, right? But for the Jewish people, as this is unfolding, they're seeing something completely different. They're thinking back to their roots, their history, the Old Testament period. And who, who, what do they know? They know that Moses was the great deliverer for his people. He brought them out of Egypt, but in the middle of them being brought out of Egypt and toward the promised land, they're disobedient to God. They rebel against God, and he has them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And what happens in the wilderness? The people start to grumble and complain against Moses. Man, we would have been better off in Egypt. At least there, we sat around with pots of meat, and we had fruit, and we had vegetables. Here in the desert, we don't have anything. Moses, what are you going to do about this? And so Moses prays, and what happens? God sends manna from heaven and he feeds the people. And what's the deal with the manna? There's some rules around these things, right? He goes, only pick up for yourself and your family every day what you need for that day. No more, no less. Just what you need for that day. If you take too much and you wake up the next morning and you're like, oh, I'll get some more manna for breakfast. Guess what? It's nasty. It's destroyed, right? So God says, trust me for today what I'm going to give you today. I'm going to meet your needs. What does Jesus do? He feeds everyone in the crowd, and they're satisfied. They have exactly what they need. Then what does the Bible say? The disciples go and pick up 12 baskets of food. How many disciples are there? There's 12, right? Just enough food. Jesus is going, trust me. Trust me for today. Trust me to meet your needs. This is the same representation. What I'm doing for you is what Moses did for his people. He was the deliverer, and I'm here to be the deliverer. But trust me today. And so that's important for us to know because as we see these things, when you read this story in John's gospel, John's going to tell us a couple of important details that Matthew and Mark don't. John's going to tell us this. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they go, this happened right before the Passover. It's almost Passover. Okay, that's an important detail for us to know. Number two, he goes, the people, here's Jesus' statement. It says, surely, this is the people talking, surely this is a prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself to pray. John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. All right. So two things that we understand. It's almost Passover, and the people want to make Jesus king. All right. Why is that important? Because in just a few weeks or a few days after this, if it's getting close to Passover, all the Jewish people are going to be moving toward Jerusalem. They're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to celebrate Passover, and their desire is, we have this guy who's the prophet we've been waiting for, or at least in their minds, the way that they've interpreted this. He's the prophet, the one we've been waiting for. Let's make him king, and when we go to Jerusalem this year for Passover, we're taking our king with us, and he's going to come in and get rid of Rome. Right, And we're going to deal with the oppression. We've got our deliverer. He just fed us like Moses did in the desert. He's the deliverer. He's the one who's going to liberate us from this Roman oppression, right? It's Passover. And they want to make Jesus king. But Jesus goes, that's not the narrative that I'm interested in. That is not the narrative that I'm going to embrace. Right, And he doesn't want his disciples to get any whiff of this narrative either. So what does Jesus do? He knows he is king. But it's not his time to reign and rule over Israel the way that he knows he's supposed to. It's not his time. The people have their time, and Jesus has his time. And he goes, this isn't the time. This isn't when I'm supposed to move in as king. And so he just does away with this thing, uh, this way of thinking. So here's what we see in Jesus. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 
and 46. It says, so immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Right, so when Jesus sees the direction that the crowds are going in, he knows that they want to come and force him to go to Jerusalem as king. He goes that they want to put him on this pedestal, that they want to exalt him, but they want empire. They want kingdom. They want David. They want Solomon. They want Jesus to step into that type of kingdom. And Jesus goes, I don't want my disciples to get any part of empire when it comes to my kingdom. That's not what I'm here for. That's not the narrative I'm building. So what does Jesus do? Mark says, so immediately he told him to get in a boat and leave, go away, right? He's like, don't stay around here. This is a toxic environment. If you guys stay here, you're going to get wind of this and you're going to want the same kind of empire and you're going to see me as a Messiah who's come to be that kind of king and that's not the story that I want you to know. And that's not hard for us to think that about the disciples because they're already thinking that way, right? When you read the gospel accounts, you're going to see that over and over again. The disciples constantly are arguing with themselves who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. When he sets up and establishes his kingdom, which one of us do you think is going to be the greatest? Like they have that argument all the time. The next year when Passover takes place and it is Jesus' time to come into Jerusalem as king and they have the last supper, the disciples don't fully know what's going on. They don't realize what's happening. Jesus is going to go to the cross. We're going to be talking about that in just a couple of weeks. And when they are sitting at the meal with Jesus, and he's washed their feet, and he's given them this last supper. Do you remember what the disciples are arguing about in the room that night? Hey, who's going to be greatest in his kingdom? <laughs> when he's king, who's going to be the greatest among us? Like, they're thinking empire. It's always on their mind. He's the Messiah, and we're going to rule with him. But they have a misunderstanding of what Jesus has come to be king of. Right? It's a different kind of kingdom. He's a different kind of king. And even after this, there's going to be another story. We're not going to look at it in this series, but there's another story where the disciples are arguing and, and uh, James and John send their mom to Jesus and go, hey, mom, go ask him when he comes in his kingdom, if one of us can sit on his right and the other one can sit on his left. Like, can you imagine that? Of being like, we want these seats of power. We want the place. Like, we want the authority to rule and reign with Jesus, one on his right, one on his left. Mommy, will you go ask him for that for us? Right? Like, come on, boys. You are known as the sons of thunder, and you're going to send your mom to go ask that question for him? Like, come on. But that's what they're thinking. That's the way they're, they're interpreting what Jesus is here to do. And so if you think about that, it's why Jesus has to spend so much time talking about the kingdom. In fact, what does Jesus do after he dies and comes back to life? Acts tells us that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples and all he talked about with them was the kingdom of God. For 40 days, he's like, every conversation is going to go back to the kingdom. We're going to talk about the kingdom. This is the kingdom. This is the kind of kingdom. This is the kind of king I am. All this stuff that you guys have thought you've got figured out about empire and rule and reign and splendor of David and Solomon coming to earth and Rome being gone. He's like, that's not the kingdom I'm in charge of. My kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. So here's what we're going to do as a church. The week after Easter, we're going to start a six-week series called The Kingdom. And we're going to focus on, during those 40 days, between Easter and Pentecost, we're going to focus on Jesus' teachings about the kingdom. Because we need to know that today the same way that the disciples needed to know that then. 
And then when we get to Pentecost, we're going to start a series on the Holy Spirit because that's when the Spirit comes in power and helps the disciples really figure out what is this kingdom that Jesus has given to us? What does it look like to be citizens of that kingdom? So that's the direction that we're going to be going over the next couple of months. And so here's where I want us to see as Jesus has gotten wind of this, he sends his disciples away, he goes up on a mountainside to pray, and then some stuff is going to unfold that's really going to kind of drive the story forward. Because when Jesus gets up on the mountainside, and I think there's a part of this that Jesus goes to pray, because just like he doesn't want to get his disciples to have wind of this kind of kingdom, I think Jesus needs to go away and say, God, I want to recenter myself on you and your kingdom. Like, what does scripture tell us? That Jesus was tempted like us in every way, but was without sin, right? You think it wasn't a temptation on some level for Jesus to go, mm, go to Jerusalem and be king of the Jewish people? Like, maybe there's some temptation there. And so what does he do? He goes, I've got to go and be in prayer all night with my father to submit myself to his will, to go back to his kingdom philosophy, to have his intentions in mind. God's kingdom is going to rule and reign in the life of Jesus before it's going to rule and reign in the life of his disciples. So he sends his disciples away and he goes up on a mountainside to pray. And then here's what we read next, verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he, Jesus, was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before the dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they were all terrified of him. And immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. Hit his eye. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Right now, last week, we talked about the disciples being in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and they thought that the storm was going to kill them, right? Like that was their understanding. This storm is bad. In fact, Jesus is asleep in, in the boat, and they go to Jesus immediately, they rush up to Jesus and like, we're going to die. And we talked about how if the people who live on the lake and are fishermen around the lake, if they think it's a bad storm and that they're going to die, it's a bad storm, right? That doesn't seem to be the issue in this one. They don't seem to be afraid for their life. It's not that bad of a storm, but they have been rowing against the wind and the waves all night long. It's exhausting. Like, listen, the lake is only seven miles across. Like, it's not a huge lake. When they call it the Sea of Galilee, it's a lake, not a sea. It's only seven miles across. And if they're only halfway across the lake in the middle of the night, and they've been going about this for hours and hours, they are exhausted, right? And so maybe you've been in that place before where you've just completely felt stuck. I've been like, I mean, I'm trying to move forward and I am not gaining any momentum here. I am trying to get some traction and nothing's taking place. Maybe for you, it's more in the realm of a job and you're just like, and I'm just spinning my wheels in this job. I would love to advance. I would love to progress. I would love to move forward, but I am just stuck here and it doesn't matter what I try to do. I never quite seem to get any momentum and I am just stuck at this spot. Maybe it's a relationship, where you're just like, man, I thought this relationship was going to be over here by now, but we haven't progressed that far, and we are just in this sp period of space where we don't know what's going on, and we're just stuck. Maybe my marriage is stuck. Maybe you're wanting to be married, and you just feel stuck in either singleness, or somebody just won't propose to you, and you're like, put the ring on it, man. Like, let's go. Let's move forward in this. Where are we going? Like, where is this going? Are we going anywhere? And maybe you've just felt stuck in some places before. 
where you're just like, I cannot get any traction. I can't move forward. Uh, for several years, I had a recurring dream. Uh, and just all the time, this dream would come to me. And it was always of me trying to walk up this hill. And it was a paved road, but I was just trying to walk up this hill. And it didn't matter how hard I pushed, how fast I tried to run. I just could not get anywhere. Like It was always like I was trying to move with a thousand pounds on top of me. And I'm just trying to move up this hill and I can't. And it's almost like somebody's just pushing me back and not letting me go forward. And I'm just going. And I can tell you, I would wake up in the mornings after having that dream and just be exhausted. (laughs) Like, man, I pushed a boulder up a hill all night long. It was awful. And I never got anywhere. Like that is, it's horrifying when you're wanting to move forward and you can't get anywhere. And that's where the disciples are. They're straining against the wind. They're rowing against the waves, and they can't go anywhere. Uh, I don't know if I've told you guys this or not, but I was in Israel a few weeks ago. Um, I feel like I start most of my conversations like that now, or somehow every conversation leads back to my trip to Israel. So I apologize. I'll probably get over it. Uh, I hope not, but maybe one day I won't you know, come up here and every Sunday go, hey, I went to Israel. You guys want to hear about it? Uh, but while we were on the Sea of Galilee, I had an opportunity to talk about this very message with the group that I was with on the Sea of Galilee. That is like crazy cool for a pastor, okay? That was an awesome experience. Uh, But I shot some video that I want you guys to see. It's not a teaching because if I showed you the teaching video I did, it would give everything away that we're talking about this morning. So I'm going to just show you this video. This is just shot on the Sea of Galilee. This is in the dead center of the Sea of Galilee, right where the disciples found themselves. And it's beautiful. It's pristine. There's no wind at all. It's amazing setting out there. But let me tell you something. This is not at all what the disciples were experiencing that night. They had been rowing all night in a storm, and the sea was against them, and the wind was against them, and they are exhausted, and they are done. And then Jesus comes out, and he walks on the water to his disciples. Is this thing even on? Did you guys catch that? Like, Jesus walked on the water to his disciples, right? And man, I got to tell you guys, sometimes I hate how we've just gotten so familiar and so accustomed to the story that we're just like, okay, Jesus walked on the water. What's next? Like, is there another thing after this? Is there another story? Because let's just go into the next story. Like, we just get so familiar with the biblical ideas that we don't even get our minds blown by it anymore. We should be people who are reading this and going, he did what? Like he walked out on the water? That's crazy. Do you do that? You don't do that. Why doesn't this astound you? (laughs) Why do we read this so flippantly? Why do we read a lot of the Bible that way? Hey, why do we avoid reading the Bible? Man, I was just thinking and praying about this last night. It's like, I'm not amazed by some things in the Bible. I'm not even all that amazed by the Bible. Maybe sometimes you guys are just like, you know what, I go, it's, it was last Sunday the last time I heard anything from the Bible. It's the last time we opened it up and looked at it because that's what we do in church. And during the week, we don't do that. We wait until the next Sunday and we open the Bible up. Are you kidding me? Like this is the word of God given to us to reveal who Jesus is. And that's the whole point of what's going on in Mark's gospel is that he is trying to tell us who Jesus is. And so in verse 48, we read this, and this is astounding. It says, shortly before dawn, all right? So they left before dusk, 
And now it's shortly before dawn. It's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., but probably closer to 6, all right? It's almost dawn. They've been out on the lake all night, and it says, shortly before dawn, he went to walk out on the lake, and he was about to pass by them. You ever noticed that before when you've read this account? Listen, why in the world does he do that? Why in the world? Jesus is walking on the water. He sees his disciples from the land. He knows they're in trouble. It said that he saw them from the land. So he's going to go walk out to them, but he doesn't go with the intention to rescue them from their situation. He goes out, and when he gets to where the boat is, he just keeps on walking past. Like, where's he going? What's he doing? And the disciples are freaking out, right? Like they all think it's a ghost. They're terrified. And you would be too. This is a moment where they're like, yeah, when we get back to land, we're going to have to clean this boat. Because, right? Like they've just had an experience where they are terrified. And yet Jesus is just going to walk right on past. Why? Doesn't Jesus care about his disciples? Doesn't Jesus care that they're struggling and they have been all night and they're exhausted? Does Jesus not care? Well, here's what I think is taking place. Mark is writing this from a perspective that he wants to keep all the focus and attention on Jesus. Mark is not an eyewitness account to the life of Jesus, all right? Mark gets most of what he writes in his gospel from Peter. We could just as well call this the gospel of Peter, right? These are most of the things that we find in Mark's gospel come from his relationship with Peter, And Peter is wanting to say, let's make sure we put the focus on Jesus and we figure out who he is in this story. There's a reason I want to tell you this story. It's so we can find out who Jesus is. And if you're reading this and you're going, wasn't there another element to this story that we just didn't see this morning? Yeah, there was. I'm glad you brought that up. Does anybody remember what we missed? Peter, right? Peter goes and walks on the water. Lord, if that's you, call me out to you. And we didn't even get that story in Mark. Why? Peter's the one telling the story. Mark's recording it. Why don't we get that story? I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, Peter may have hated that story. I can be like, Peter, didn't, didn't you go out walking on the water to Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to talk about that. I, I took a few steps and then I sank and that wasn't really a cool day for me actually. So I'm glad y'all are impressed by that, but we're not going to tell that part of the story, right? Like Peter may not have wanted to tell the story when his faith is small and he doesn't get to do what he really wanted which was to stay focused on Jesus. The second reason that I think that Peter is doing this is that Peter doesn't want to be any part of the story focused on him. He wants everything to point to Jesus. He goes, there's something going on here that you guys need to see. I'm telling it this way so you'll pull something out that's important for us. And to really get the significance of this moment and what the disciples are seeing in the life of Jesus now, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Because in Exodus chapter 33... The same person we talked about earlier, Moses, who fed the people with manna. God sends manna from heaven, but Moses cries out for it. He's the deliverer, right? There comes a a part in the story where Moses is frustrated with some things that are happening. And he's like, God, you're wanting us to go into the promised land, but here's where I am. If you don't go with us, then we're not going to go. Like, I have to know you're going. Who are you going to send with us? Because if we're going into the promised land, but you're not coming, I'm staying right here. I'm just going to spin my wheels right here in the desert. We'll walk around the desert for the rest of my life if that's what it takes. Unless you promise me that I have your favor and you're going uh, to send us in and you're coming with us. And so that's exactly what God says. He goes, Moses, I do. I've chosen you. I've favored you. And I'm going to go with you. 
And then Moses makes one of the most bold claims and, and questions. He asks one of the most bold questions that's anywhere in the Bible. Do you remember what it was? Moses goes, all right then, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see it with my eyes. And here's God's response. The Lord said, Exodus 33, 19, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So what does God tell Moses in this? He says, hey, I'm going to let my glory, what? Pass by you. And I'm going to proclaim my name to you. What's the name that God had given to Moses at the burning bush when he first met him? I am. Moses goes, hey, if you're asking me to go to Egypt and deliver your people out, what happens if they ask me your name? Who do I tell them sent me to you? And he goes, you tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. You tell them I am sent you. That's my name. And it will be remembered that way for the generations, right? So God says, I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock, let my glory pass by you, and I will proclaim my name to you. Beautiful. Now, we go back and we think about this. And Jesus is walking on the water and his disciples are struggling. What does he do? Mark says Jesus is just going to, what? Pass by them. And when they cry out in terror and they cry out in fear, what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. It is I. The Hebrew equivalent of what Jesus says there is I am. Jesus walks by his disciples and as he passes by, he says, I am. And Peter's going, don't you dare tell my story. Don't you dare include me in this. You take me out of the equation. This is about Jesus. And then we think about how the Bible pieces everything together. And I love the story and how it's completed is. In Job chapter 9, we had it read this morning to us. But I want us to go back and see this one more time. Job 9, 1 through 12. Job replied, indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him. Not one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Maybe he can feed 5,000 people with two loaves of bread and some fish, or five loaves of bread and some fish. Uh, he has, who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone, no one else, he alone stretches out the heaven and does what? Treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Now listen, church, if God alone trends, treads on the sea and Jesus comes walking out on the water, 
the disciples are making the same discovery that we're meant to make as we read Mark's gospel. Jesus is God. Jesus is the king of the universe. He's a different kind of king than they've anticipated. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of glory. He is the one who put the constellations in the sky. He is the one who calls the stars by name. He's the one that makes the sun shine. He can move mountains if he wants to. And he comes and he walks out on the water because he is the king of the universe. He's a king who walks on water. And that's good for us to know today because Jesus finds us where we are in the storms of life and he comes and he meets us. Matthew's the one that actually tells us the account of Peter. Mark doesn't, John doesn't, Luke doesn't even include the story. But Matthew was there. Matthew's like, I'm going to tell people, Peter, you were out there on the water. I saw you. Like, I am not going to let that go unnoticed, Peter. We are going to talk about that, right? So Matthew includes the story of when Jesus comes walking out on the water and Peter yells out and goes, Lord, if that's you, you call me out. And here's what I love about this, because as we see all of these things taking place, the story is absolutely about Jesus, but he does invite him to come out and walk on the water with him. But here's what's fascinating. Jesus doesn't calm the storm first. He goes, yeah, Peter, come on. The water's great, jump in. Like he invites him to come to him, but it's still in the storm. He doesn't change the situation. He doesn't change the dynamic. He doesn't make the situation better for the disciples first. He just goes, come and be with me. Here I am, the God of the universe on the sea, and you're invited to come into my presence. Come and walk in my steps, even in the middle of this trial, even in the middle of this storm, come be with me and walk with me. This is where I am. And you're invited to come and be with me. And so Peter does. He gets out of the boat and he walks for just a little while. But eventually, what's Matthew tell us? He starts to see the wind and the waves. And he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he starts to sink. And it's in that moment he has to cry out and yell for Jesus to interact with him and to say, come and save me, right? And what does Jesus do? Jesus is good to bend down and grab Peter by the hand and to pull him back up out of the water and to set his feet in the firmness of the water while Jesus is holding him. And I think there's something important for us to know in that. Sometimes in your storm, Jesus is saying, hey, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. And we're not listening because we've got our eyes on our circumstances and not on our Savior. We see the storm and we miss Jesus. And he goes, listen, I'm going to be right there in the storm. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to change your circumstance. I'm not going to change your situation. Not this time. That happened before. You guys were dying. You thought you were going to die. And what did I do? I immediately woke up, spoke to the wind and the waves. It was solid. Peace be still. Done. Like we're back in good standing with, with nature. Not this time. This time I just want you to come to me. Come and be with me. I want to be enough for you. Even in your trials, even in your storms. If I don't change your circumstance and your situation, will you still look to me? Will you still come and find me? Jesus is what it's all about. It's his story. It's not Peter's story. And for us, we need to understand that while Jesus will deal with storms, he deals with them differently. And sometimes he doesn't pull us out of them. But then he catches us and he holds us up. And he says, I want you to know 
that if you'll just keep your focus on me, it's going to be okay. Things may not go the way you wanted them to, but if you'll just watch me, things are going to be okay. So this morning as we close and we get ready to just sing together again and reflect on some of these things, let me ask you a question this morning. What are you looking at? Are your eyes on your circumstances? Or are your eyes on your Savior? Where where are you keeping your focus and your gaze? Is this more about all the trials that you have and the troubles that you're going through and the difficulty and all the things that only you see? Like, I mean, I get stuck there so often. I get stuck in that place again, just like we talked about at the beginning of the message where it's like, I should know this already. I should be so much more faithful to Jesus. I should weather these storms and I should look to him and yet I don't. More often than not, I second guess myself. Jesus, am I doing the right things? Am I saying the right things? Am I, am I guiding my kids the right way? Am I leading my wife the right way? Am I, am I doing the right stuff? Am I saying the right thing? Did I get it right? Am I a success? Am I, what about the church, God? Are we leading this thing right? Are we doing what you want? And it's all about, am I doing the right thing to make a difference? And God's going, are you, will you just forget that? Just walk with me. Like, I'm standing right here. I'm right in front of you. And you're so distracted by all your stuff that you've missed your Savior right there with you. And so, church, this morning, I want us to understand that our Savior is right here. And I don't know exactly what you're going through, and I don't know how you feel about the places that you are right now. But I know that you can keep your eyes on Jesus, and it changes the whole game. He's enough. He's the one we have to be about. That's who we have to be after, is Jesus. Even if he doesn't change your circumstances and your situation, he's enough. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.